Well, our focus for study this evening is Genesis 6 verses 9 to 22. Genesis 6 verses 9 to 22. So please keep that open as we uh, come to study it now together. Tonight we're thinking about God and Noah. And in particular, uh, the covenant established between God and Noah. <clears throat> the book of Genesis can be summed up in two words. Creation and blessing. Creation and And blessing. God creates the universe at the beginning of this book simply by the power of His Word. And everything that God created was perfect and good. But then creation is threatened, almost ruined entirely by the sin of Adam and Eve. And Genesis 4 to 5 have shown us the fallout, the, the impact of sin in the world. As time has gone on, we've seen, we thought this morning, about how things have gotten worse and worse. To the point where even the sons of God, and we saw this morning, we believe that to be uh, the children of Seth, the children born into the godly line. Even they become just like the world around them, committing gross acts of sin against God. But Genesis 6 verse 9 marks a new section of the book. Uh, And if you think of Genesis 1 to 11 as really the first unit or the, the first main part of the book of Genesis... Uh, if, you, if you take Genesis 1 to 11 on its own, uh, the story of, of Noah and the flood comes at the heart. It's at the very center of Genesis 1 to 11. The story of Noah and the flood shows us that God is not going to allow his creation to be entirely ruined by man's sin. Instead, he is going to provide a way for a new start, for blessing to return to the earth. And he's going to do that through his relationship with Noah. Genesis 6 verse 18 is the first use of the word covenant in the Bible. Although most reformed theologians would believe that God had a covenant with Adam. Uh, other parts of scripture uh, lead us to that conclusion. But this is nonetheless the first time that we see the word covenant used. A crucial word. A word that in many ways sums up the whole storyline of the Bible. God says to Noah in verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you. And I think maybe maybe I'm being unfair, but for whatever reason, I do think we tend to hear that word covenant and uh, it perhaps doesn't sound the most exciting word. Maybe there's something about the word covenant that doesn't exactly thrill us or engage us sometimes, but it should do because this this is how God has Chosen to bring about a plan of salvation for human beings via covenant. And a covenant, for just a a basic definition, is is a binding, solemn agreement between two parties, at least two parties, involving promises and conditions. A marriage, for example, is a covenant. Any of us married this evening, we have entered into a covenant. A man and a woman take vows before God and human witnesses. We promise to be faithful to one another. And should those vows be breached, uh, should that covenant be breached, there would be serious consequences. The storyline of the Bible is the story of God showing covenant love to sinners. Of God making promises to those who don't even deserve those promises. And through those promises, bringing blessing. And as God prepares Noah for the flood, for this act of judgment on the sin of mankind, he does so via covenant promises. 
I want to think first of all this evening about covenant mercy. Covenant mercy. Look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Notice the word corrupt repeated three times there. When the Hebrew language wants to emphasize something to us, it repeats it. Three times the word corrupt appears. It means spoiled, damaged, ruined, beyond repair. Notice as well, verse 11, it says, The earth was filled with violence. God had commanded Adam and Eve to fill the earth via procreation and stewardship of the, of the created world. And instead, mankind has filled the earth with violence, wickedness. The phrase corrupted their way in verse 12, corrupted their way. That emphasizes that this was a pattern, that this was constant and repeated. And it was all across the world, wherever human beings were found, this was what was going on. Corruption, sin. And so God decides, after showing incredible patience, as we thought about this morning, God decides that the time has come to judge the world, to totally destroy it and start afresh. Interestingly, every, virtually every ancient civilization has some version of a flood story. It's part of the secondary evidence for believing that a worldwide flood did happen. Why do all these different civilizations from all over the globe have a version of the flood story? Is it really likely that they all, off the top of their heads, dreamt, dreamt it up? Or is it likely that all those different versions have some basis in truth? The Mesopotamian records, the Chinese, many others, they all have their own versions. But in those, all those other versions, friends, the flood really comes about as a result of chaos. It's not because anyone decided they wanted it. It's because the gods lost control. In the Mesopotamian story, for example, a destructive flood comes about because of the, the capriciousness, the, the selfishness of various gods who were fighting amongst one another. And in the midst of that fight, their, their power sort of spills over and gets out of control and causes the flood. But the Bible tells us that the flood, <coughs> the flood was not an accident. That's why... These words are being repeated here in verses 11 and 12. It's emphasizing to us that this was God's decision. It wasn't the result of some fallout between lots of gods and goddesses. It was the sovereign decision of the one true and holy and just God. His patience has a limit. His hatred of sin demanded that that sin be punished. And yet, in the midst of this dreadfully dark picture... Perhaps the, the worst state that the world has ever been in. Look at verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. <clears throat> in days of unprecedented evil, when everyone else lived lives of total disobedience against God, Noah remained a righteous, blameless man who walked with God. Only Enoch is described elsewhere in scriptures walking with God. We thought about that a few weeks ago. Similar descriptions are given of Adam and Abraham. 
But Noah walked with God. He kept up a particularly close, faithful, loving relationship with God, an obedient relationship with God. And he did it, friends, in the very darkest days the world has ever seen. We think our world today is bad, and it is, but at least we know that there are millions, millions of other Christians in the world. We gather here this evening, a few dozen of us, however imperfectly, uh, walking with God. We, we love God and, and we're surrounded this evening and we know many others around the world who, who are like us. Who are in the same kind of relationship with God. In Noah's generation it got to the point that he was the only one. Apart from perhaps his family members. And that in itself, friends, shows God's covenant mercy. Remember what we considered this morning, Genesis 6 verse 8. so important that we keep this in mind. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, God's grace found Noah. God gave him faith, changed his life, made him his child and, and showed him mercy that he didn't become one who just went the way of the rest of the world. Notice how the descriptions of Noah pile up in verse 9. Righteous, blameless, walked with God. Now he wasn't a perfect man. We'll see that later in the story. But those are certainly, that's certainly high praise of a man who deeply loved his God. And it was a result, as we thought at length this morning, of God showing him grace, covenant mercy. In verse 13, God graciously speaks to Noah. He he speaks to him, warns him what's going to happen. Verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. He goes on, behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark. Make yourself an ark. That's merciful, friends. There's God telling Noah in advance what's going to happen, what he has to do. And by God's grace, Noah responded to God's word. And in his particular generation, his righteousness stood out, as one preacher has said, like a shining diamond against a black velvet cloth. To Noah and through Noah, God chose to show covenant mercy. And this should be so encouraging for us, friends. We can so easily get overwhelmed as Christians because so few people around us seem to be paying any heed to God's word. Even some who claim to be Christians on issues like worship, sexual ethics, work on the Lord's day. So many do not seem to be walking closely with the Lord. That's before we even consider the scandalous national and even worldwide sins of perversion and murder of the unborn. And the sort of new paganism that is taking hold in the West. And we could be tempted to think, well that's that. People just aren't listening anymore. People aren't going to respond to the gospel. People are too steeped in their sin. Maybe we're tempted to compromise ourselves in certain areas and think, well, if no one else is taking these particular parts of God's word seriously, why should I? Friends, if Noah was able to keep walking with God in his generation, surely we can keep walking with God in ours. If God gave him mercy and grace sufficient, he will give us mercy and grace sufficient. And the language in the original emphasizes that, that that Noah's walk with God was by God's strength, not his own. 
It literally says in the original, God with Noah walked. In other words, it was God who kept Noah walking with him. God held Noah close. God preserved Noah, not just from the flood when it eventually came, not just from the waters, but from the flood of wickedness that surrounded him beforehand. And God will do the same for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is the Lord Jesus God's covenant mercy personified, not only has Jesus taken our place and received the judgment for our sins on the cross, but Jesus also unites us to himself. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ, he is a a new creation. Jesus himself said, John 15 verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. If you have vegetation or fruit trees in your garden, the branch has to stay connected to the main, the main trunk, the main body of the tree if it's going to bear fruit. And as long as the two are together, the branch will be strong and it will, it will be life, life-bearing. It will be fruitful. And it's the same for us, friends. We are in Christ. We are united to him. And Christ says that as long as that is the case, you will, you will bear much fruit. You will be able to walk with God. No matter how wicked the world around us may be. Boys and girls, you might be the only ones in your school who even believe that there was a flood. But God will help you to keep believing that and believe every other part of the Bible. Even if other people are laughing at you for it. Men and women, you might be the only one at your workplace who does all your work with integrity or doesn't cut the corners that other people do, stealing time or manipulating the system. God will give you grace to keep on walking with him even in the midst of a crooked generation. Whether it's the persecuted church today with all the the pain and trial that men and women in other parts of the world experience for the sake of the gospel, whether it's the challenge we have in our evangelism, whether it's the, the temptations that we face as we considered this morning, praise God, friends, that he has shown us covenant mercy and that he will keep us walking with him. Noah shows us that even in a, in a corrupt and wicked generation, it can be done by the grace and mercy of God. So covenant mercy that Noah walked with God. But then secondly, let's think about this covenant promise, uh, which is really at the heart of the passage. Covenant promise, verse 18. This is really the key verse of the passage. God says to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of course we know the animals were included as well. Uh, And it's easy perhaps to uh, overlook the fact that all these animals come in. We know the story so well. But of course that points to the fact that God cared about all of his creation. And that every part of creation was going to be made new. Nonetheless, first and foremost, of course, God is uh, concerned about his relationship with Noah. And there's God's covenant promise, verse 18. I will establish my covenant with you. God's saying here to Noah, a way of escape will be given. Here's how you can be spared, Noah, from the judgment to come. I have provided a way. This is my appointed means of saving you, of rescuing you. John Calvin says, safety was promised to Noah if by faith, if by faith, 
He would take refuge in the ark. We'll think more about that issue of Noah's faith in a moment. But for now just consider friends. God provided a way for Noah to be saved. The flood was a fitting way for God to deal with the sin of the world. The world you might say was being flooded with man's sin. God is now going to wash it clean. The word used throughout Genesis 6 to 9 for flood. Uh, the word flood that's only used here in Genesis 6 to 9. In the whole of the Old Testament as well as once in Psalm 29. And that tells us friends that this flood was an entirely unique event. What God did in Noah's day was nothing like the floods that sometimes happen in some parts of the world today. As bad as those floods can be. This was a unique event. This was worldwide Man's sin had ruined the world. God's flood in turn would ruin mankind. And yet God promised Noah, there is a way for you to escape. Verse 14, make yourself an ark. Make yourself an ark. Now on the one hand, as I say, we need to appreciate that God takes the initiative here. God is showing grace. God is making a covenant promise which he is then obligated to keep to save Noah and his family. But on the other hand, friends, we also have to consider the faith demanded of Noah and his family to believe this promise and act upon it. We're so familiar with the story. It's romanticized in many ways. Uh, You think of our children's picture books. They usually have giraffes and elephants poking their heads out the windows and so forth. We don't consider the tremendous faith it would have taken for Noah to believe this promise and act upon it. The ark was gigantic. We'll think again in a moment of how difficult it would have been to build. But by modern measurements it was 450 feet long, 45 feet wide, 75 feet wide. Gigantic. And Noah would like to think with the help of his sons had to spend a lifetime or for us. Three or four lifetimes building it. And what exactly was it that he was building? Well again not to ruin the children's toys or storybooks too much. But most of them are not very accurate. Um, The word ark is only used in this section of Genesis. And in one other place in the whole Bible. Exodus chapter 2. When it describes the, the basket that Moses mother made for him. It's a word that can be translated in Hebrew as box, chest, or coffin. This was not a boat or a ship. A boat or a ship is designed to to get you from from point A to point B. Noah's ark did not have to do that. It just had to float. And so it's better to think of the ark as really being a huge box, which Noah and his family and the animals had to walk into. Believing that one day God would take them out again. And of course that's exactly what Noah did. Noah trusted in the covenant promises of God. How terrifying the thought of entering into this floating box. A giant coffin and coming out on the other side. And nonetheless Noah trusted God's word. And again the emphasis of the passage falls in God providing for Noah. Again look at verse 18. I will establish my covenant with you. Here is my appointed means of saving you. As strange as it sounds, 
As foolish as it sounds, this is my promise, God says. And Noah had to believe it by faith. As Hebrews eleven seven says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. In reverent fear, Noah constructed the ark. In faith, when the time came, he and his family had to walk into that ark, believing the covenant promises of God. And of course, for all of us today, for everyone in the world today, God has made a covenant promise. A promise that sounds like utter foolishness to the world around us. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that this is utter foolishness to the world. But for those who are saved, it is the wisdom of God making us wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And Peter likewise in 1 Peter chapter 3, he likens the, the ark in Noah's day to uh, God providing that ark for Noah to him providing Jesus Christ for us. The ark seemed an unlikely way for God's promises to be fulfilled. It might have seemed ridiculous to Noah and his neighbours. They had never even seen rainfall in the way that we know rain to fall today, most likely. But this is what God said. This is what God promised. And likewise today, friends, men and women would scoff at the message of Christ, crucified, buried, and resurrected. They try to convince themselves that any notion of Jesus coming back again and destroying the world by fire and bringing judgment is foolishness. But God has promised and God will do it. And this is the pattern all through the Bible, that God humbles us. He turns our expectations upside down. The things that we think, the way we think things should be, the plans that we might make, God turns them upside down and says, no, this is my appointed way. This is my means of working in your life. Believe in my covenant promises. And again, just to speak to the boys and girls this evening. Notice that it was for Noah and his family that this ark was to be constructed. You, your wife, your sons and your sons' wives. In the New Testament we find the words, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household or you and your family. And boys and girls in church, God still cares about families. He doesn't just care about mums and dads or aunts and uncles. He cares about you as well. And just like the sons of Noah had to believe God's promises to their dad, they had to decide for themselves to walk into the ark. So boys and girls, you have to decide for yourselves whether you will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. Having a mum or a dad who loves Jesus won't save you. Going to church every week won't save you. Being better behaved than most other boys and girls in your class won't save you. You, like adults as well, must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And of course, the same goes for adults listening in this evening, either in person or online. You can laugh off this passage of scripture, Noah and the ark is an old myth. Surely that's just a children's story. You can continue trying to find contentment in other things. You can continue trying to ignore the call of God upon your life. 
But God has determined to judge the world one more time at the end of all things through fire. And you will stand before him on that day and he will condemn your sin. Unless you believe the covenant promise that he makes, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then you will be part of a kingdom, a new world full of life, full of animals and plants and continents and trees and food and people who know and love their creator God and who will enjoy him forever. That is God's covenant promise to you this evening. So we've thought about covenant mercy, covenant promise, and thirdly and finally, covenant obedience. Covenant obedience. Look at verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. All that God commanded him. One writer says this is an emphatic declaration about Noah's obedience. Another writer says God was calling upon Noah to accomplish a task that had no precedent for an experience that had no counterpart. In other words, something that had never been seen or done before in the history of the world to that time. No one in human history, friends, had ever seen anything like what God said was coming. A flood of water to destroy the world. It's just unthinkable. It's unimaginable. The evidence would suggest that rain had not been falling in the way that we know it today up until this point. Earlier in Genesis it says that a a spring was coming up out of the ground and watering the earth. And yet Noah believed. And Noah obeyed everything that God commanded him to do. And if we ever feel the strain of obedience, friends, in our lives, if we feel ourselves to be increasingly the odd ones out in our wicked generation, if we feel the struggle with temptation that Satan often inflicts upon us, just consider what Noah had to deal with. John Calvin suggests several temptations that surely Noah had to battle as he built the ark. First, and quite obviously, there was the sheer size of the ark, as I've said. I I can't get my head around how many trees would have to be felled. Maybe some of you would be able to do the maths. But how many trees would have to be felled and moved and shaped and fitted together for a 450 foot long floating box to be constructed? You think your job gets tiresome. You wonder sometimes what you're achieving doing the same things day after day for maybe 10, 20, 30 years. Well, Noah did the same job day after day for 100 years. You think he ever felt overwhelmed, tired, tempted to think, is this really worth it? Calvin also suggests that Noah would have had to deal with various threats, both verbal and physical, over the century that it took to build and prepare the ark. Do you think his neighbours, in this particularly violent and sinful time in which he lived, do you think they just didn't mind that he was cutting down all these trees for his I was going to say little project, his big project. Taking up all this space with his ark. Do you think they never mocked or threatened or maybe even tried to sabotage Noah's work? Both Calvin and Martin Luther suggest that more than once perhaps it it would have taken miraculous protection from God for the construction of the ark to continue. 
And how tempting it would have been for Noah facing the viciousness of his ungodly neighbours to just give up. And then also, as sort of hinted at already, there was the temptation, friends, to simply not believe that going into the ark would save him and his family. I mentioned earlier, the same word used to describe this ark could be used in Hebrew to describe a coffin. It had one window, most likely in the roof. It was dark. Pretty soon, once they got going, it would stink with the food and the animals and the things that happen when animals eat food. No one ever had ever needed a vessel to survive a flood before. Walking into it would have felt like walking into a tomb. Calvin says Noah, in a sense, had to die and yet believe that he would live again. He had to die and yet believe that he would live again. And yet amid all these temptations, friends, what does it say? Noah did all that God commanded him. Everything. And along the way, 2 Peter 2 verse 5 says that Noah was a herald of righteousness. He preached, he proclaimed, he warned his neighbours about the judgment to come. He was preaching, obviously, by the very act of building the ark. But that word proclaimed would suggest that he spoke as well. What incredible faith, what exemplary obedience, and what a challenge for you and I. The truth is that many Christians in the Western world today, we are lazy, we are comfortable, and it does not take much for us to find excuses not to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a society absolutely obsessed with individual feelings. If you listen to your news tomorrow morning, I guarantee you that a lot of what will pass for news is just people talking about how they feel. They feel disrespected. They feel that their story needs to be told. They demand that their feelings dictate how laws are created, regardless of the facts. I think it's very interesting that we're not told a single thing about how Noah felt for a hundred years. We're not given Noah's personal journal extracts. Dear diary, it's day 526. People still keep mocking me for my ark. I feel like such a loser. We're not told about how Noah felt. We're just told what he did. That he obeyed completely what God commanded him to do. He was willing to let his reputation die. His career die. His personal opinions die. He was willing to walk into that dark, daunting, awful ark. And believe that he would live. Despite how utterly foolish it looked to the world. Jesus Christ said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. He also said, John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We follow a saviour who was mocked, stripped naked, spat on, nailed to a cross, tortured and executed. Following him and obeying him means that we have to die. 
If we want to maintain the unity in our church family as we're commanded to do in Ephesians, some of our opinions at times might have to die. If we want to see people reached with the gospel, time we might otherwise have spent on ourselves has to die. If we are to obey God regarding how we work, how we eat, how we speak, our money, our sexual expression, we are going to have to die to the way that the world says all those things can be done. Are we willing to do that? We are citizens of the kingdom of God whose money, time, energy, service should all be put at the disposal of our king. Do we act like that? It seems on the whole in Northern Ireland church culture today, not very much. If I can, be, if I can fit a bit of service, a bit of prayer time or church time around work and life at home and relaxation, sure, that's me doing my bit. Noah's entire life was a response to the grace God had shown him. God said, build yourself an ark. People scoffed and mocked and attacked as they still do today. But he did it. At some point in the months ahead, we'll go out and we'll give an open invitation to people in our town to join us here in the worship of God. To escape the judgment by trusting in the means that God has provided. We're going to do the same thing. Just in a different way that Noah did. And many of the people we go to will think it's a joke. You Christians, you still at this? Your wee church, you still preaching about sin and judgment? But what should motivate us is the same thing that motivated Noah. Hebrews 11 verse 7. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And of course, we don't just need to be waiting until the times when as a church we do this or do that. This can apply to our own daily lives as we seek to be witnesses to our friends, our neighbours, our children, whoever it may be. Are we going to fear God or men? Are we going to obey a little or a lot? Are we going to obey outwardly whilst inwardly moaning and groaning? Or are we like Noah going to do all that God commands us to do? God has shown us covenant mercy in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had made us a covenant promise that all who believe in him will be saved. May we respond, friends, with covenant obedience as we witness to the world and worship his great name. Amen.